Well, good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome back to the Big Issues Seminar Stream. If you've been coming each morning, it's great to see you back. If you're here for the very first time because you want to hear Lauren speak on this subject, welcome to the Big Issues Seminar Stream. Let me just explain how the seminar will run, and then I'll introduce Lauren briefly. So what we'll do is Lauren is going to speak on the subject, Me and Anxiety, and when she's finished speaking, she's going to invite you guys, if you have a question that you'd like to ask her, to come forward either to this microphone here, which has got a red top, or over here there's one as well. You guys can queue up and ask any questions towards the end of the seminar. When it gets to half past 12, we'll need to stop the stage bit of it. But Lauren has said that she's very happy to come down and stand here at the front, and you can ask her a question. Maybe a question that you didn't want to ask through the microphone with everybody listening, but you wanted to ask her. You can do that. Also, because of the nature of the subject matter, me and anxiety, we will have some prayer team guys. If you want somebody to pray for you, these guys actually come to New Day because they like praying for people. So they'll be here and they can pray with you at half past 12. So let me introduce Lauren, who, as you can see, is standing on my left. I first came across Lauren online. I watched a, a YouTube video of her speaking at the University of Surrey, and it was a, an amazing story about her own journey in terms of becoming a drug addict and then meeting Jesus, the difference that Jesus has made. In fact, the talk was about what advice she'd give to somebody trying to help somebody who's coming out of an addictive lifestyle. I was so wowed by this talk that I contacted Lauren and invited her to come and speak at our church, the Beacon Church, Camberley. She did an amazing job. We so loved having her. I think you'll love hearing her story and also hearing what God's done in her life. So she's new to New Day. She's not been here before. I'm really excited that she agreed to come. So why don't you put your hands together and welcome Lauren Wendell. Go for it, Lauren. Thank you so much. Um... Am I all good sound-wise, yeah? Yeah? Okay, great. Um, well, that was a bit of a spoiler alert, because I was going to do a grand reveal about the drug addict thing, but the secret's out, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. But first off, I feel quite anxious sometimes listening to talks in church, and I don't want to put that on you, but like, you can get a bit restless when you're sitting on the floor, stuff like that. So you have full permission to lie down. You have full permission to close your eyes. You have full permission to colour or doodle or do whatever you want to do. My request is that you don't play with your phone, but I'm not going to come down there and slap it out of your hand if you do. But I just feel like that's how we can work together in terms of of letting this not be a super intense experience for you guys. And actually, I do that quite a lot in church. I'll just go and lie down at the back. It means I'm still listening, but it doesn't feel quite as intense for me. So, yeah. Um, I'm Lauren Windle. I am an author and a journalist and a public speaker, as you've heard. My publishers kill me if I don't mention that I wrote a book. I've got it here. It's on dating, so something that some people find quite anxiety-inducing. It's called Notes on Love. You can buy it if you want to, but I just had to do that because I get the guilt if I don't otherwise. Um, But I'm talking about anxiety, and there's one thing I want to make really clear before we sort of delve into this and how it relates to all of us, is that there are levels of anxiety and levels of worry, and I am not a doctor. And if you're experiencing something that feels like an extreme level of anxiety, that is definitely something to take to a medical professional or to talk to your youth leader about and see what the best course of action would be. Um, So it needs proper diagnosis and proper treatment. And that is something that I think should definitely come from a doctor. So for example, on the NHS website, when we're talking about anxiety and it's most, most extreme, we're talking about restlessness, constantly feeling on edge, difficulty concentrating, irritability, dizziness, tiredness, sweating, shortness of breath, stomachache, feeling sick, headache. So we're talking about something a lot more than just freaking out about something. This is something really quite serious. Um, And if that does sound like something you're struggling with, definitely, definitely go and chat to a doctor about it. Speak to, you know, an adult that you definitely trust. Um, 
Also, I, like, I love the idea of praying for healing, and we should 100% be doing that for anything that is causing us distress. That's physical, mental illness. We should definitely pray for healing. But in my life, when God has healed me, it's never been with like that lightning bolt moment and you're just done. And, and I love that some people have those stories. But actually what I found for me is that God often provides me with the tools to help myself in what can be sometimes quite a slow process when it comes to healing. So there's no shame in reaching out and using the tools available to you, whether that be in church or NHS or charities or whatever, to get support for things that really matter, including your mental health. And that's something I do as well. I don't feel like that's an unchristian thing to do. I don't feel like that means that you don't have faith in God. You do, but we have to be sensible and we have to use the incredible resources that God has given us. Okay, now we're going to talk more about sort of general worry and anxiety, the stuff that I imagine we all feel. And I spend a lot of time worrying about a lot of things, and I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to come and do this talk for people who are just a tiny bit younger than me, wouldn't want to specify how much, then I should think about the stuff that caused me anxiety when I was, say, like in secondary school. So I've got a list, and it actually reminded me how stressful I found secondary school. Um, So I remember clearly worrying about my reputation, about what people thought of me, about my popularity levels, about whether or not my friends were speaking about me behind my back. I went to an all-girls school, so that was almost a certainty every single day. Uh, Whether or not I was doing well in school, whether or not I was going good grades, if my body looked okay, if I was in shape, if I looked how I was supposed to look, if I was thin enough, if I was dressed well, if I could persuade my parents to buy me the latest outfit or the latest phone or the latest thing, um, I would worry that I wouldn't get as much screen time as my friends so that I'd feel like out of the loop at night times. I'd worry I wasn't allowed to watch the same films or the same shows and I'd feel left out. I'd worry I didn't know about things that other people did and I didn't want to seem like young or immature and I wanted to know stuff and be that person. I'd worry that I would miss out on parties because my parents weren't always the ones who were like, yeah, just go. Like They wanted to call other people's parents before I turned up at a party. Can you imagine the agony of that. Um, but if you'd come up to me then and asked me, like, what are you worried about? Are you anxious? I definitely would have said nothing. I would have been like, no, I'm fine. I'm not. Like, everyone says being young so hard, but I'm absolutely fine. And I think part of me actually believed that to be true. But on top of all of those sort of concerns, and I'd say if you asked most of my friends, a lot of them would have felt the same sort of things. I also had this social anxiety, Um, And I I went to church until I was about 13, Um, but I'd say around the time I stopped going to church, 13 was kind of a tipping point for me. Um, I got this social anxiety, which meant that when I turned up in a group, I always felt like I was on the outside. I always felt like nobody wanted me there. I always felt like I wasn't welcome, like I wasn't good enough, like I had to prove myself in some way. And my heart would start racing, and I didn't really know what to do to tackle it. Um, So I came up with a solution, and that was just to drink. So when I was about 13, the laws around drinking were the same. You still couldn't drink, you still couldn't buy alcohol till you're 18, but they weren't really enforced like they are now. Like, it's really quite hard work to buy alcohol under the age of 18 these days. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the impression I get from the young people I know. But when I was 13, I could walk into my cost cutter and yeah, they knew I was too young, but they sold it to me anyway. They didn't care. So I had access. I didn't have a lot of money, but when I did have money, I had a bit of access. And also you could take alcohol from like your parents and your friends' houses and um, would just, you know, top the bottles up with water afterwards and, and drink like that. And some people had older brothers and sisters who'd buy us bits and pieces. Where I grew up in South London, it was totally normal for teenagers to get drunk, drunk, to the point of throwing up, to the point of, of like, not remembering, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that... I don't want to make assumptions about you guys, 
but I also don't want to patronise anybody. There may be people here who've decided they don't want to drink, and that is, I'm telling you, a very, very sensible decision. There'll be people here who probably will drink, and there'll be people here who already know what it is to get drunk and to go out, out, and all of that kind of stuff. So I went out, out, as much as I possibly could. I drank as much as I could get my hands on, but I was hiding in plain sight because lots of young people did that. Nobody like pulled me to one side and said, oh, we're a bit worried about how much you're drinking. And then I went to university. And when I went to university, you know, there's a freshers week, which is a whole week where there's no classes, just to give you time to be hungover and to get drunk. And I was in my element. I just loved the fact that there were so many budget drinks, deals, everyone was just facilitating this party lifestyle. So I threw myself into it even more. And once again, I was just hiding in plain sight. You know, I was drinking like somebody with an alcohol use disorder, like an alcoholic. But no one would have known really because they just thought I was Lauren who could drink a little bit more than everyone else. Then um, I left university, broke up with my long-term boyfriend. I've been with him from when I was 19 to 22. And we really... We were really codependent. And by that, I mean that we shut out everyone else and we relied exclusively on each other. And I relied on him for my approval, to, to tell me what to do. It was quite a controlling relationship. I, I basically distanced myself from my friends and family because that's what he wanted. And that meant that actually when I lost that relationship, I lost so much more than just the guy I was dating for three years. What I lost was the life I had and the life I thought I wanted for myself. Now, I said that I went to church up until the age of 13, but I didn't like it. Didn't, didn't keep going. I, I had quite a miserable time, particularly in youth group. I was beaten up in church um, in, on the Friday youth club. My sister had to come and pull me off the, off the ground and, and get me back home. So as soon as my mum was like, you don't have to go to church if you don't want to, you're old enough to stay home. I was like, I'm staying home. So I hadn't had any contact with church up until this point at all. If you'd asked me, I probably still would have said I was a Christian. And I can remember sometimes being really drunk and praying and being like, oh, God, I've done this again. What do I do? Help me. But then when I sobered up, I didn't pray anymore. I was, you know, it was fine. I didn't need him anymore. So after I broke up with this boyfriend, I got a job in hospitality. So I was working in restaurants. I was doing events management. I thought I was fabulous. I was on the door with the clipboard. I thought I was loving life. I could drink as much as I wanted. I could drink at work. It was like, if you saw it from the outside, you'd think she has got the dream job. But I was dying inside. I couldn't keep up with the partying and the drinking that I was being encouraged to do. And um, then somebody offered me some drugs. And I was like, not got anything else going on. Never tried drugs before. Well, that's a lie. I had tried cannabis when I was younger, but nothing stronger. I was like, yeah, yeah, this feels right. This feels like the party girl lifestyle that I want for myself. So I tried drugs. And very quickly, things spiraled out of control for me. I wasn't anxious anymore. Well, not when I turned up at social situations because I was too drunk or high to notice. It's not that those feelings were gone. It's just that I had something else to focus on. And actually, I can remember when I did turn up at events and I hadn't started drinking yet or I didn't have any drugs on me to take, I felt so anxious. I, like, I can remember one of my friends, her sister, being like, are you all right? And me just being, I just need to have two glasses of wine. Just need to have two glasses of wine. What kind of life is that when you're hanging around with friends to need chemicals to keep you going at just like a friend's family party? People wouldn't really leave me around their kids. I remember actually the same family party. Wow, I really, really went for it that night. Um, still being there at 7 a.m. because I'd been taking drugs with someone. And um, the kids had obviously gone to bed at a normal time. And they're little, little ones. 
And they got up at like 6 or 7 a.m., like young children do, and they came downstairs. And I was still sitting there, and I was like, oh, it's time to go home. So I went to pick up my phone off the side, and it was plugged in, like charging, so I could like call a, an Uber or a cab to come and get me. And one of the little toddlers came over, and I just saw the mum go, no, 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 and like scoop her up away from me. And I thought like, oh, I can't, I'm not even safe for children. Like that's... That's the place I'm in. No one would leave me alone with their kids. Um, This carried on for a few years, and things got increasingly desperate. I stopped washing properly. I got numbness in my fingers and toes. I got um, spots in front of my eyes, which is actually like neural damage. That's done. There's nothing I can do about that now. I still get floaters in front of my eyes. So if I'm ever trying to spot a fly, there's just absolutely no way because I've got so many, so many going on. Um, I got nosebleeds. I couldn't remember things that had happened like 15 minutes before. I lived my life writing notes on post-its every time I picked up the phone because otherwise there was no way I'd know what I was doing. Um, But for some reason, I didn't stop drinking and taking drugs. It's not that I didn't want to. And it's a hard one, really, because, yes, pardon me, I shouldn't have tried the drugs in the first place. But by the time I realized how important it was to make the right decision around taking drugs, before I realized how important it was just to say no, my ability to say that no, to make that choice under my own strength, was gone. And that's something I think it's very hard to understand when you haven't been there. Because I used to be like, oh, if you're depressed, just cheer up. Or, oh, if you're addicted, just stop. Actually, like, it's a very unempathetic view. And when you're at that place where you can't see a light, you can't see a way out, you think that you're betraying the misery of the addiction you're trapped in for something even worse on the other side without the drugs and drink, actually, you just keep going. Better the devil you know. You know, and, that, and it's a really small life. I was living a really small life, all because I felt that without something to prop me up, I couldn't handle life on life's terms. I couldn't cope with anxious feelings that I had. I couldn't cope with difficult situations. So eventually I uh, told my sister, this is a prodigal son situation. I'm the one who left, did the partying, got all the praise when she came back. My sister's the one who faithfully stayed, kept going to church, got no praise. She's, she's much a better person than I am, but, um, but she's the one who was consistent in church. And um, I called her up and I said, I, I need help. I'm taking drugs and I just don't know how to stop. I really don't know how to stop, and I don't want this life anymore, but I don't know what to do. So she moved me out of my house and moved me in with her. She took me to church, and at church they were like, does anyone want prayer? They did that thing that they do, and my sister was absolutely broken when I didn't go up for prayer. She was like, no, God, come on. You say you meet people where they are. You say you come for people. Why aren't you coming for her? She's turned up. She's at church, and you're not coming for her. I don't... Like, who even are you? Well, I don't understand what's going on here. She was, she was heartbroken. But I didn't get it. I thought they were nice people. I didn't get it. Carried on drinking. Stopped taking drugs on the whole, but I carried on drinking. And then I um, met a new drug dealer. And that was when some of my friends stepped in and they were like, no. You know, my friends who don't take drugs. The ones I went to university with, the ones who really have my best interests at heart, they were like, look, okay, you have made some good steps, you've really cut down on drugs, but we can see you spiraling again with this guy. We need you to do something to help yourself because we can't do this with you for much longer. So they asked me to go to a recovery group meeting, um, which was on a Tuesday They looked it up. They gave me the details. It was one of those anonymous ones. And I was like, "Mm, I guess I could go. But, you know, I don't think I need it. But I'll go just to shut them up. And then also I can 
you know, like, be in one of those meetings. I can tell everyone about it when I go to the pub or go for drinks, you know, like, hi, my name's Lauren and I'm an alcoholic. I can be like, oh, my gosh, I was there, guys. Let me tell you how this all works. So I turned up and I just cried. And it, it just, I realized very quickly I wasn't, I wasn't there to observe. I wasn't there to appease my friends. I was there because I needed it. And if I didn't, I could die. And I, I saw women there who were just three months clean and sober. And, and they had something I wanted. They, they had a level of freedom that I never thought I could have. So I agreed to do it, and I agreed to stop drinking as well, and I never wanted to do that, because it's easy to know you've got a problem when you're taking drugs, but to know that you've got a problem when you're drinking, in our culture, that loves drinking, you can always find someone who drinks more than you. I didn't feel like I had a problem with drinking, but they told me, if you want to do this, we believe that you need to get rid of all mind-altering substances in your life, and that includes alcohol. And honestly, I was terrified because what did that leave me with? I wanted to be the party girl. I wanted to be the fun one. I wanted to be the one that everyone called when they wanted a great night out. How do you do that without alcohol? You'd like, I'd never seen that done. That wasn't a thing. I was terrified, but I decided to do it. And I decided to go to one of these meetings every day for 90 days because if I had time to get that drunk every day, I had time to invest in myself and my recovery. And on the third one of those meetings, someone started talking about their higher power. Now, if you ever do go to one of those meetings, and hopefully you never have the need, um, you'll know that it's all based on Christian principles, but in order to be accommodating and to allow people who don't share Christian beliefs, who don't believe in Jesus to come, they'll talk about a God of your understanding or a higher power. And you get the opportunity to fill in that blank. No one will tell you what that is. You get to work that out, what, what your spirituality is, what that means to you. And I obviously remembered, well, I've been to church. My mum used to take me. So I Googled church. And I went to the first one that came up on Google. And I turned up and I was five days clean and sober by that time. And at the end, they said, does anyone want prayer? And I was like, I should do this this time. So I walked up and I said to the American pastor, um, I'm a drug addict who is five days sober. Can someone pray for me? And he was like, yes, okay, sit down. He pulled people over. He brought over a married couple as well. Can we lay hands on you? He taught me through this prayer about how I'd been a sinner, about how I gave my life to Jesus. And I was like, I don't really know what this is, but if you need it, I'm, you know, if that's, if that's what you need, I'll give this a go. And then they invited me into their church family. They gave me a Bible. I didn't have a Bible before. And um, called my mum and I said, uh, I'm going to read this Bible. Um, but I was pretty sure, I'd like, I knew about the Bible. Obviously, I'd gone to church. I'd had a picture one as a kid. Like I knew about the big boat. I knew about the hair that you cut and then you're not strong anymore and that, the talking snake and, you know, all the fairy stories. That's what I thought. And my mum was like, oh, no, no, don't read from Genesis. Don't just turn the book open. This is the best advice to anyone who wants to read the Bible, by the way, guys. Go to Matthew. Start reading at Matthew and just do the first four from there. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. She was like, that's the bit where they really talk about Jesus. I was like, all right, start a book from the middle is a bit weird, but if that's what I'm supposed to do, that's what I'll do. I got to Matthew 6, verses 25 to 27. So I was six chapters into that massive book. And you know the chapters are quite small anyway, like really, we're talking two, three pages. And I read this, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the and on my hand. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And I was like, what? This book isn't just fairy stories. This isn't just like these big miracles that we're never going to see in our time. This is like relevant. I honestly couldn't believe it. And there's a few things that I actually didn't know about the Bible. So I was 25 at this point. So I, like, I'm just going to tell you this stuff, okay? Because no one told me. People assume you know. I didn't know. And you may already know it, but just bear with me. Don't laugh at me that I only worked this out when I was 25. I just want to give you a 10-year-ish, depending on where you're at, jumpstart that I didn't have. And it seems so obvious to me now but it didn't when I first picked up the Bible. The Bible is not a rule book or a book of like stories, like, like tales, like, you know, fantasy stories. It's, it's a love story. It's a book about a God who loved his people so much that he would stop at nothing to be close to them, even though they constantly pushed him away. It's not like roses and chocolates love. We're talking about a love that drives you forward, that kicks down doors, that turns over tables and starts fires for people who he cares about. Um, I thought, I remember reading through and like, when I did finally get to the Old Testament, some of it's gnarly, you know, like... Game of Thrones, horrific. I was like, how can God want this? How can God think this is how he behaved? It's not. The whole story is people getting it wrong, people pushing God away, and the consequences of doing that. There is one person in the Bible who always got it right. There's one person in the Bible who you can safely replicate, and that is God's son, Jesus. The rest of them, sometimes they did good stuff, don't get me wrong, like... Moses was great. You know, loads of them. There's loads of them who did really, really good things, but not consistently. No one, no one was sin-free apart from Jesus. So as you're reading it, you're like, these are people we're supposed to copy. They don't seem that great. Lots of them aren't. Noah was a drunk and David, David was an adulterer and, you know, Moses killed someone. But actually they did very good things afterwards. I'm not saying that they, they did great things but they didn't do all good things. It's only Jesus who you look to for a perfect model of your life. I didn't get that. I thought that that was wild when I worked that out. Um, The sacrifice that God made specifically to bring us closer um, by giving his son to die, that's like his Hail Mary pass. That's like the end. That's like, this is it. They haven't listened to me. I've done all I can. And this is the last thing. And that's where I started reading the Bible. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it, to start there as well. And what a fool was I, just thinking it was all... I just just thought it was so irrelevant. Turns out that's not the case. So now that I am a Christian, and I have spent the last eight years being Christian, reading this Bible, working out what that means to me, and helping other people to come through the addiction that I felt trapped in, Um, there's some stuff that I think it might be helpful for you to know. Some of this is Bible, some of it's just my thoughts. So if it's Bible, it's true. If it's my thoughts, take or leave it. I don't mind. Um, A lot of my anxiety, first off, stemmed from a fear that I wasn't popular or that I didn't fit in. And by trying to fit in, all I did was strengthen a culture that made me feel excluded. If you see something and you don't feel a part of it, if you bend yourself to become a part of it, you're feeding the beast. You're making it a bigger thing. Because other people from the outside, they can't tell the difference of who's in and who's pretending to be in. And then they start pretending too. And then we just keep going round and round, making people feel on the outside. And that's not, that's not God's vision for us. That's not God's kingdom. That's only going to make us feel insecure. Um, another thing I think it's really important to flag up, which 
I don't want to keep saying when I learned these things, but this one was embarrassingly recently. I'd say like two years ago. When we look at emotions, when we look at feelings, we often categorize them as good or bad. You know, joy, happiness, peace, anger, worry, upset, sad, disappointed. There's no good or bad emotions. There are just emotions. What you do about them can be bad, but how you feel, it doesn't make you less holy, doesn't make you a bad person. It's how you feel. Feelings aren't facts, though. So recognize it. Allow yourself to feel it. Don't let it define you, you know? Just, just see that it's there. Notice it about yourself. Learn about yourself. Under what circumstances do I feel angry? Under what circumstances do I feel anxious? Under what circumstances do I feel sad? That's how we start to build real emotional strength and intelligence and resilience. And that makes you a stronger person. Also makes you a stronger person for the people around you. Never shut out a feeling. Don't dumb it down. Don't push it away. Don't drink it or eat it or gamble it away. Because you, like, you can get short-term fixes in loads of places. But actually, what will make you a well-rounded person is to recognize it, invite it, ask it questions. You know, why am I feeling like this? Where's this anxiety coming from? What do I believe that's fueling this inside me. Um, Lament is your best friend when you feel worried or anxious or low about something. And that is a prayer practice which I would really encourage you to chat to your youth leaders about, to read up on, to watch a little YouTube clip or whatever. But it's basically like acknowledging to God that you're in pain. And so often we'll pray and be like, hi God, yeah, all good today. This wasn't really ideal. I'd love it if I didn't, you know, if this hadn't happened, but you're the best, thanks, bye. He knows. He knows what's hurting you. You don't have to lie. You don't have to pretend for God. He sees inside and out and he wants to be a part of it with you. Actually, lament is not the act of going, Lord, I feel rubbish, pull me out. It's saying, Lord, I feel rubbish. Join me here. Come sit with me. And maybe you will feel rubbish for a bit longer, but you won't feel alone. And that's when it's hard, is when you feel alone. So you often can't help your first thought. I think we can feel quite guilty sometimes because we'll think something quite bad. It'll just pop into your head and you'll think something quite bad. Okay, It's not ideal. We don't want to be people who jump to think something bad, but it happens. You're not evil. You don't have to feel guilty. That's not actually a reflection. It doesn't have to be a reflection of how you really feel of the person you are inside. Actually, though, you can take control of your second thought. And that's in 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 5. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And I remember thinking like, well, how do you do that? That sounds a bit abstract. Super simple. Just go, I acknowledge that I thought that. I acknowledge that I thought something that wasn't ideal. I thought something really cruel about that person or really cruel about myself. We are mean to ourselves and we shouldn't be. Acknowledge that you felt it, that you thought it, and then pray and just say, God, I'm giving that to you. I don't want to be that person. I don't want that. I'm surrendering that thought to you. I'm inviting your Holy Spirit. I want to think better thoughts going forwards. Um, When Jesus says in the Bible, and he does, and I've read you one already, you know, don't worry, don't be afraid, don't have anxiety. That's not like a drill sergeant being like, stop, stop feeling anxious. Because actually that, you know, someone just telling you when you feel anxious to stop feeling anxious, that's probably the most anxiety inducing thing you can do. Like, no, stop. Like, how? How am I supposed to stop? And now you're shouting at me. It's a comfort. What he's offering is comfort and reassurance that you don't need this. Not that you're bad if you're feeling it, but actually like we can do this together in a different way. Um, 
And there's so many other verses which I seek comfort from when I feel anxious. I've got two of my faves here. You've probably seen them in some fancy font on someone's wall or on Instagram or something. Romans 8:28 or TikTok. You guys are more TikTok, right? I did look on TikTok to research for this because I was like, you know, connect with you. Rubbish. Didn't like it. Sorry. Uh, Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Or Isaiah 43:1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. That's like this almighty God who knows your name, who calls you, who has an interest in your life specifically. That is spectacular. And he's on top of that, working for your good. Like if you really get that, if you can root yourself in your, in your identity on the stable ground of that, You are absolutely winning. And all you have to do is pull yourself back to that when you feel anxiety. Um, As a drug addict, I spent a long time keeping secrets, hiding things, lying to people, manipulating, living a bit of a double life, triple life, you know, never telling anyone the full story. I'd really encourage you if there's something you're feeling anxious about, and this is something that people say a lot in recovery circles, is you're only as sick as your secrets. It is really important that you safely speak to somebody about what it is that you're going through and what you're tackling. It does not mean that you stand on a stage. It does not mean that you have to sit in front of your whole youth group and be like, here's the deepest stuff that's going on in my life. But a youth leader, a church leader, somebody you really trust Somebody who's a few stages ahead of you who can speak wisdom and peace and God into your life, I would really encourage you to share what is giving you anxiety with that person today or soon. Um, I don't know how much of an encouragement this really is because I remember people saying this to me when I was like school age. But I'm going to say it anyway. And if it's annoying, when you're my age, you get to say it to young people. So it's a beautiful cycle. Um, What you're going through now, a lot of the stuff, particularly the stuff I listed early doors about how I felt, you know, unpopular and on the outside, doesn't last. If you are a person who, who isn't treated very well in school, and often bullies, bullied people bully, you know, but if you're in that category, if you know you're not, being treated very kindly, and maybe you're not treating people very kindly. Like, well, if you're not treating very kindly, just stop, just don't. But if you know you're not being treated very kindly, know that that really doesn't last, and it it may feel like it's the end of the world for you now because it's a massive thing in your world. But these horrible, horrible trials and things that you have to grapple with now, they do end. And I think I really needed to hear that. Maybe I found that a bit annoying. I don't know. Um, Take it or leave it. That one's not Bible. That's just me. Um, Be careful how you process how you're feeling. There are so many very healthy ways of processing worried feelings, feelings of anxiety. But number one, doing something good for yourself doesn't always feel good straight away. Don't expect that when you pray or that you run a bath that that is an instant fix. People looking for instant fixes look in the wrong places like I did. I promise you the healthy ways of doing this aren't instantaneous often. But they are growing you and helping you. And if you take time to pray about the things that that are really causing you pain, sometimes you really will feel good pretty much straight away but sometimes that's going to be a process and it's going to be layers and it's going to be more conversations more conversations with God but trust me that is worth it it is worth it because the short-term things do not serve you in the long term you know and my solution for anxiety became a bigger problem than the anxiety in the first place 
So I'd encourage you to be really careful about that. And just things like going for a walk, talking to friends, praying, reading some of these verses in the Bible that I'm sharing with you, having a bath, just like taking it easy on yourself. They're the kindest ways to deal with it when you feel like maybe you can't cope anymore. Um, If you're a person who relates to that sort of social anxiety thing, like, recognize it in yourself. Ask yourself questions about why. Are you in the right social group? Do they, do they make you feel welcome? You know, sometimes it's just all in your head. It's all on you. And then that's something you can pray on, you can challenge, you can speak to your youth leaders about. Sometimes, like, your mates are just rubbish. They don't build you up. It's not a safe space for you to be in, you know? And actually, like, if you're in a friendship group that's competing for popularity and, you know, to be the best looking and da-da-da, I don't blame you for feeling anxious. It's horrible. Um, And that kind of ties into what your priorities are. If you're chasing good looks, you'll always feel ugly. If you're chasing a TikTok or Love Island body, you'll always feel out of shape. And if you're chasing the approval of your friends, you will always feel unpopular. But if you chase God and his kingdom, you will always feel loved and supported no matter what the world brings you. Oh. That was nice. Thanks, guys. Um, It was for God, not for me, but I'm the one standing here, so I enjoyed it. Um, C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Yeah, big fan over there. Um, Said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And I really believe that. Instead of prioritizing all of the things that the world tells you are important, like, let's just get some heavenly perspective. Let's see this how God sees this. And like, those things are just not, not important. And um, I think what is most important when it comes to feeling anxious is rooting yourself and understanding your identity in Christ. Is really learning what he says about you and how he feels about you and cementing yourself on that truth because that's not going to shake. That's not going to go anywhere. You can help the people around you not to feel anxious by being consistent and loving and kind, and a safe, secure space for them. I had a horrible time in school. I had a horrible... My friends, I still know some of them now, and they're all right now. They're quite nice. Back in school, every single one of us, me included, was a horrific person to know. But you don't have to be that person. You can provide a safe and secure space for the people... You cannot talk about your friends behind their back. You can build them up. You can speak biblical truths into their lives. You can tell them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that they are the daughter or the son of a king, that they can achieve all things through God that brings them strength. I can't tell you how differently my life could have turned out if I'd had a group of friends championing me like that at school instead of telling me, as we told each other, that what matters was popularity and who fancied who and who looked the best and who had the best clothes or who had that flip phone. Really dating myself with the flip phone. Build yourself a friendship group that looks like God's kingdom and you are setting yourself up for long-term success. That, I think, is really important. And I'm going to do Q&A, so if you guys want to start, if you have questions, do come up to the microphone now, but whilst we're waiting for people to collect themselves and potentially come up, I'm just going to do a quick prayer for all of us. Lord God, we ask you for eyes like kingdom citizens to chase after you and your glory, to live like your son and stand firm on your promises that you would work for the good of those who love you. We ask that our sights are set on you every time we feel ourselves getting anxious or worried and that we would use it as a reminder that you are good and you are for us and you are sovereign, that you love us 
that you are our Father and that we can completely trust in you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, guys. I always feel like the first person to ask a question is the bravest. So please enjoy that accolade for the rest of New Day. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, when you like, when you like, get anxious, especially when like secondary school, yeah. um, do you like? Have you always feel like you're an outsider in your friendship group? Um. I did, but as, I, as I'm sure you've gathered, I, I didn't fight for the best friendship group when I was in school. And I think that any group that prioritizes things that aren't massively wholesome, that want to go out, that want to party, that want all of those things, it's going to be very hard to feel on the inside because they operate by being exclusive. They operate by making people feel like they're on the outside. And that's how they retain the sense of popularity, by making it feel like not everyone's welcome. And actually, like, I don't, I don't want to be a part, like, my friends aren't like that anymore. Everyone's welcome, you know? And I feel like if you feel welcome, you can make others feel welcome as well. And that's such a talent and such a gift. So if you're feeling that way in school then I'd suggest looking around, like, who's the group that lets everyone in? Who's the group that's just kind, that's cool, that doesn't make me feel like I have to fight for their love and their care and their kindness? That's probably the space where you'll feel less anxious. Is that cool? Thanks. Yo. Hiya. Um, Hiya. What advice would you give to somebody who has a severe social anxiety that can't bring themselves to be in new environments to make new friends let's say they are completely lonely and they aren't a part of any friendship group or they've come out of school and they don't have friends and they can't actually bring themselves to join a club or to go to church because of that severe social anxiety um if someone's completely completely isolated it's very difficult because how do we know they exist? How do we know they're there? I assume that in this context, there are people who are aware of them, people who care for them and are encouraging them to do these things, but they're not, they're not able to get themselves over that line. I'd say work out what is most comfortable for them and bring it to them. So if for them, 10 is turning up at church, turning up at a youth group, turning up at a club, then what's one? Is one like two people coming over to their house to watch something silently on Netflix? Cool. Let's do it. You know? And then maybe two would be like, we're going to have a little chat, maybe a pray after, after we've watched this for half an hour, and then we're leaving. And then maybe three, and you, you kind of work up from there. But always make sure that person knows they have an out. Give them a safe word. The second they go, you leave. That's it. No questions asked. You're not offended. That's fine. I remember one of the things that really helped me, because I was anxious as a 25-year-old going out to clubs or bars or dancing to parties with my friends. We had a rule. The second I say I'm leaving, no one tries to make me stay. That's it. Get home safe. How are you getting home? Message me when you're back. What taxi are you getting in? What bus are you getting on? That's fine. Because it didn't feel comfortable to me to be peer pressured into staying. So actually saying, like, what do you need? How, how can we make socialising okay for you while you're in this moment. We know this is going to take a while, but we're here and we're happy to wait for you. You know, I think that's probably the best way to start. No worries. Hey. Hey. Sorry, my voice is kind of gone. Um, what advice would you give to someone kind of trying to help maybe a friend who has social anxiety? Like, what would you think, you know, when you were younger would be an awesome piece of advice that you, you wish you'd received? I think, and this is probably across the board for anyone who is struggling with something mental health-wise, I think what you need to hear is, we see you, we can see that you're struggling right now, we can see this is hard, maybe we don't get it, maybe we don't feel the same way you do, but it's obvious that, that you're in need of some support, we're here for you, we love you, we know this is going to take some time but we're not going anywhere, but you have to do something to help yourself. 
So what's that going to be? What, what are you going to do to help yourself? And we've got your back while you do it. I feel like that level of conversation is life-changing. Yeah. Thanks. Hey. Oh, <laughs> um, what would you do if you have a friend who you know struggles with something similar that you have um, and you feel like you're sort of enabling them in a way if they ask you for money um, and you give it to them and they're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Um, how would you support them when they don't know Jesus, they don't have a God's support in their family? How would you tell them that they're heard um, and to stop enabling them? Um, mm, so we're talking about addiction rather than anxiety at this point, yeah? Don't give them money. No. Um, it's a... There are so many better ways to support someone than by giving them money. And on, on the recovery course that I run, we're really strict. Like, this is not a bank. We're not lending you money. We're here to offer you practical emotional support I think the best thing you can do if someone is struggling with an addiction this is this is going to sound a bit manipulative but it works and you know it's worth it catch them when they're on a come down or when they're hung over or when they've just binged on you know they've just spent a load of money on gambling or they've been up all night watching stuff they shouldn't have been watching on screens catch them when they feel ashamed because that's a real teachable moment. That's when they're most likely to be open to change. Not when they're hyped up, not at night. Not when, you know, it doesn't feel like such a big deal anymore. Catch them when it feels like a big deal and say to them, like, this is not a healthy way for you to be living. I know that, you know that. There are loads of different people, places, your church. There are Christian recovery things, but there are non-Christian recovery things. Those anonymous groups welcome absolutely anyone and just really encourage them to go and say that you'll go with them. You can go with them if it's an open meeting. Like on Alcoholics Anonymous, it'll say very clearly open meeting and then you can go in support of someone. Um, you can't if it's a closed meeting. Um, just signposting people often doesn't help. You have to walk them there, <laughs> but... That's, you know, that's fine if you can, if you have the capacity to do that. But also don't feel disheartened if nothing changes because often nothing changes. I remember every time someone approached me to try and help me and it was like a brick that built up into a wall. I needed every single one of those bricks, but one on its own was never going to do the job. So it's okay if what you're doing is just a brick in a wall. It's more than okay. You know, that's, what, that's all you can do. But they still need that brick. So don't feel disheartened if it doesn't seem like anything shifted. Hey. Quite a lot of the time when I have anxiety, I don't even know why I have it. I don't know the direct cause of my anxiety. So how do you process your anxiety when you don't know the root, you don't know where it's from, and it's more just a feeling? Yeah, okay. Very practical response to this one. Pad of paper, table, three columns... Write down where you were when you felt that anxiety and roughly the time of day. Then write down if you felt happy, hungry, angry, tired or lonely in the middle column. And then in the third column, just journal what you're feeling. You know, what you're feeling physically, what's going on in your head, you know, stuff like that. And I think in the moment, often it's very difficult to pinpoint. But if you do that and you do it a couple of times and you have like four or five of those written down, you will start to see patterns. You will see that actually, ah, it's when I'm not in control of this or it's when I'm worried about that or when I'm afraid of this or when I'm around these people or in this place or when people start doing this or speaking in this way. And then you can start making practical changes to protect yourself from feeling that way. You know, that's when you can put in protective measures. You can say like, oh, every time I'm in this place, I feel really low. Can I phone you to a friend? And then they just know like, oh, okay, what, you at that train station? You know, whatever it is. And you, can, and you can speak to them about that, you know. And you can counter each of those patterns with something really positive instead. Thanks. Hey. Hi. Um, how do you help your friends with their anxiety if they don't want to open up to you? I think you have to leave people to be where they are, um, which, is very, which is very tough. Um, you can't push anyone out of what they're feeling. All you can do is create a cushion if they want to jump 
you know, like you, you can't make them come out, but you can make sure that they know that they're super protected if they do want to talk about it. And actually, the more that they see that modeled in their friends, the more they see vulnerability and openness modeled, the easier it will feel to kind of fall into that groove when they need it themselves. And I'd encourage everyone to take really good steps to protect their mental, emotional, spiritual health when they're not feeling low, when they're not feeling like they need it. Because when they do need it, they've got the mechanism in place. They know. They're like, oh, don't worry about that. I've been doing this weekly. You know, I I know what helps me. And even though it hasn't felt important before, now that it is, I know exactly what I'm doing. You know, so I'd really encourage you to start that kind of process now. Um, And then also people will see you doing it and they'll know like, oh, that's someone I can speak to. That's a safe place, you know. Thank you. Hey, Um, what advice would you give to someone? Sorry, my voice is gone. Um, What advice would you give to someone who's kind of getting worked up about like really little things like being late to something or like just really out of the blue but just anxiousness I think often that's that's what worry and anxiety why has everyone lost their voice by the way what are they doing to you guys you guys raving all night or something um I think often that's what worry and anxiety is I I have found that I have got this much space for worry and if I have something big to worry about, I'll shrink it down so it's this size. And if I have something tiny to worry about, I'll blow it up so it's that size, you know? And, and that's just something that we do. Um, I think that there are practical things that you can say. You can say, like, okay, logically, like, let's play this tape all the way forwards. You're late. What happens? They might be annoyed at you. They, you know, you might not be able to see the film. You, you know, that's blah, blah, blah. Is that the end of the world? What have you lost? Like, what's, you, you can play it all the way through. Like, okay, how much money does that cost you? How much time has that cost you? Who may have you upset? Okay. And actually, often at the end of the day, can turn up late to something. It doesn't really mean anything. Not that we should be doing it. But often, the consequences are pretty low to none. And actually, just talking that through with someone can be very helpful. But what I also find is that when someone's really anxious about something, they know all that. They know all the practical things. They know it's not really a big deal. They just don't feel it. So it's getting it to go from their head to their heart. And I think that the best way to do that is through prayer. And and if they're not a prayer, then maybe you can pray on the slide, ninja prayer. But like, actually, it's God's strength, I think, that gets things that, that we know logically, but we don't feel, that gets us to really feel them and to be rooted in them. And it's important you know, that we do have that kind of perspective. So, yeah, I think that one's got to be up to God. No worries. I've got two minutes, so I'll take one more, possibly two if it's super quick, and then I'll be at the front so you guys can come and chat to me and, um, and I'm happy to, yeah, bounce ideas off you there. So, hey. Uh, hi. Sorry. What would you say to someone who's in a group setting with friends and they sort of just feel isolated. And it's not like the friends are bad people, but uh, anxiety starts kicking in and intrusive thoughts and they just, they don't really feel good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and actually, yes, I've covered the whole like, oh, maybe your friends are a bit rubbish. Actually, maybe your friends aren't rubbish. Maybe you are in with the right group. Maybe they really are trying to encourage you. And maybe you're still just feeling like you're not accepted, you're not welcome, you're not on the inside and there's a lot of stuff on intrusive thoughts like well in my research on TikTok I'm not gonna lie came across a lot of it um and and I would encourage you to read up on it it's not my sort of specialist area but what I can tell you is that that is a lie that it is from the enemy and the best thing that the enemy can do to take you away from that moment, to take you away from that community, to take you away from the incredible fruits of your friendship group, of your youth group, of your church, is to whisper in your ear and be like, you're not welcome here. Look how much they're laughing and you're not in that joke. They could be laughing about you, you know. There is no truth in that. 
And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And I feel really passionately that when I said about taking thoughts captive and making them obedient for Christ, this is your moment. This is your shining moment where you go, no, I'm not having this. I'm not hearing this. This isn't me. I am valuable. I am loved. I'm in the right place. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I am welcome here. And you need to keep saying that to yourself. You need to pray it into yourself. Read the Bible, you know, and, and hear that so clearly that your value is so much more than the lies that you're telling yourself, that the enemy's telling you, that you're reiterating. We really can be our own worst enemies, you know. And if you look in the mirror and say horrible things about yourself, or if you stand on the outside of a friendship group and say horrible things about yourself then actually, like, we really need to change that narrative. We really need to remind ourselves that this is good, and it's good that we're here, and it's amazing to spend time with friends. This is what life is. That is life in its fullest. When you really are around friends who lift you up and make you laugh, that's, like, the best example of of God's goodness and God's community. So don't let anything steal that away from you. Thanks.